Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Sasha Dov Bachman. Sasha Dov is a professor of law at the University of Canberra and co-convener of the National Security Hub at the Institute for Governance and Policy at the University of Canberra. Sasha Dov is a Lieutenant Colonel of the German Army Reserves and has worked with and advised NATO as well as the Defence Forces of several other states, including Australia, on hybrid warfare and information operations. Sasha Dov's research focuses on issues of emerging global security threats, hybrid warfare, information operations and cybersecurity. So I very much look forward to diving into a discussion of some of these issue areas on the podcast today and how they relate to the current conflict in Ukraine. So thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today, Sasha Dov. Thank you very much, Jessica. I'm very happy being on your podcast. Thank you. In your evaluation, what are the major security challenges of the 21st century? Before 24th of February 2022, I would have said great power competition and then particular threats, which I will elaborate on, which are very often connected to globalization. But obviously now with the Ukraine war, it is fair to say that the biggest challenge in the 21st century is the return to the war or the war fighting of the 20th century, which is basically interstate war at an industrial scale. Besides that, we have other threats, what I refer to as great power competition with it, what we call gray zone, very much like political warfare. And then obviously what we in the past referred to as hybrid threats. NATO in 2010 came up with a capstone and this capstone encapsulated all these threats, which are very often associated with globalization linked to, for example, environmental challenges, refugee situations, mass migration, and then organized crime, for example, transnational organized crime, global terrorism, demographic challenges, resource security issues, retrenchment from globalization, and the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. So I think these threats, they continue to be our current threats. In addition, we have since the 24th of February, we have the real danger that we will see more interstate industrial scale conflict, which reminds us of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And interesting that you indicate that a lot of those threats are in this more hybrid zone. So they're actually non-traditional security threats. We've had a renewed focus on the NATO alliance and its role in the global security architecture for obvious reasons since the 24th of February this year. Do you feel that NATO is well prepared to deal with the kind kinds of threats that we're going to face in coming years. I think NATO is showing that it is prepared. NATO in response to the illegal annexation of Crimea was actually on the forefront of creating capabilities to counter what was then termed by the Secretary General Stoltenberg as hybrid war by Russia. That means raising awareness, creating interconnectivity among the different branches of NATO and in the member states, establishing a NATO center of excellence in Finland in order to work on resilience. 
but those were basically in response to the Russian hybrid warfare as evident in the illegal annexation of Crimea and then the ongoing war in the Donbass. We have seen that NATO has done a lot to strengthen its traditional kinetic deterrence. And we are talking here about battle groups, we're talking about air policing, we're talking about trying within the organization to focus on the, the risk that Russia began to post since 2014. So we have seen that NATO responded to this new multimodal threat scenario. NATO has done a lot here, not only in responding in military terms, but also in terms of trying to apply what is called a comprehensive approach, which involves multi-stakeholders, that means civilian and military, and trying to basically work together to have a type of response readiness. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that a lot of those measures were actually developed as a response to Russia's leveraging of hybrid methods post 2014. So with those incursions into Ukrainian territory in 2014-2015, could you say a bit more about how you view Russia's relative success in using hybrid warfare pre-February this year, or whether you do view it as a success or not? So I think it is fair to say that Russia actually was quite successful. And whether you now refer to it as hybrid warfare as NATO does, whether you want to refer to it as reflexive control or even the Gerasimov doctrine, many people and me as well, we dispute that there was such a thing as the Gerasimov doctrine. But in the 2010 Russian military doctrine on modern warfare, it was stipulated quite clearly that Russia was looking at war fighting from a holistic, one can say, total war approach, which means the integration and utilization of military force and forces and resources of a non-military character. And then the implementation of measures of information warfare in order to achieve political objectives in the interest of shaping a favorable response from the world community to the utilization of its own military force. That is something what I quoted now from work by Michael Kaufman and Matthew Ruyansky. And if you then compare that with a Secretary General of NATO Jens Stoltenberg, who on the 25th of March 2015 reflected on the Russian approach in Crimea and then also in Donbass, he said Russia has used proxy soldiers, unmarked special forces, intimidation and propaganda, all to lay a thick fog of confusion to obscure its true purpose in Ukraine and to attempt deniability. Stoltenberg said NATO has to be ready to deal with that, what he and he refers hybrid warfare. In Crimea, it was this green man. It was Russian troops, which were legally there because they had bases they were allowed to use and reinforced by special forces units. They intimidated the then very, you can say, poorly led and poorly equipped Ukrainian armed forces. So very successful. But then as a next step, moving to the Donbass, there Russia actually went to the traditional, you can say, approach of hybrid warfare, where you blend the conventional and unconventional, the regular and irregular assets. You have at any given time, Russian soldiers on leave fighting in the Donbass. They were fighting side by side by the Donbass irregular units. So again, here creating deniability. We send soldiers on leave, hence we can deny they are there. But as it's been established, Russian military assets were not only made available, they were also operated 
by Russian military personnel. But all that alone would not actually have posed such a big challenge and threat. What we see here and what is new is this element of disinformation, very advanced cyber-enhanced use of disinformation, which includes or entails all access points like, for example, social media, like think tanks, like academia, like newspapers, etc., etc. But because it is cyber-enhanced, it actually is much more powerful because it goes out quicker, it is very hard to control and actually to counter. And that makes it so dangerous. Mm-hmm. Then, like, why has Russia been relatively not as successful post 24th of February in terms of their military engagement in Ukraine? Are they still using those aspects of disinformation, cyber warfare in the way that they were previously? Or has that been somewhat abandoned as they've gone for this more full-on strategy of military confrontation? It's a very good question. Why did Putin commit to a 20th century style of large-scale conventional warfare against Ukraine? Important is one thing to note. Because of NATO and the European Union working so hard on raising awareness and finding an approach to strengthen their own resilience regarding hybrid warfare coming from Russia, that Putin, I think, realized that he has achieved the maximum, or he had achieved the maximum in terms of what he was able to achieve against Ukraine without escalating. Why did it go so wrong for him? Mm. That is something what has been assessed by many military commentators. But I think the most important thing, the most important takeaway before we look at what the Russians did wrong is to say, what did the Ukrainians do right? And what the Russians failed to really assess properly, I would say, is the readiness and the capability of the Ukrainian armed forces. Mm-hmm. We are not talking of today, looking at the support, the uh, kinetic, the lethal support that Ukraine has enjoyed. We are talking of the first, I would say, week of the conflict. One can really say that Ukraine has done a lot since 2014. Uh, It has completely modernized its armed forces, mostly with the help of the United Kingdom and the United States. Ukraine had substantial support in terms of, for example, anti-tank and also, for example, uh, anti-air defense weapons like the Stinger, the uh, very famous Javelin anti-tank missile. Putin's war plan didn't work out, was solely due to the quality of the Ukrainian armed forces. And that was a direct basic result of years and years of reorganizing command and control, working with allied partners regarding training leaders, officers, and establishing a strong, you can say, NCO element, that means non-commissioned officers, which are very important and is very absent in the Russian army. The NCO, that is the sergeant, the leader of a small unit of men and women, is absolutely uh, crucial because you cannot have officers and no NCO, no in-between level between the troops and the leadership. Russia has a non-existent NCO element within the army. This is a couple of these reasons why Ukraine was so much more resilient than Russia actually fought. And then I also think that Putin just completely was, yeah, maybe even misled by his own security services, the FSB. This misconception, the strategic misunderstanding of the situation, uh, in addition comes then obviously all the 
disadvantages, I would say, that the Russian army suffers under, whether that is a complete failure in terms of leadership, whether it is a complete breakdown of command and control, talking here about Ukrainian approaches to electronic warfare, jamming the Russian basic communication channels, the Russians not being able to communicate, leading to this high number of casualties of high-ranking flagship officers, but then also this complete corruption, worsened situation in terms of the material, the maintenance of the material. We have heard of military vehicles breaking down simply because they were not maintained in a proper way. Tires were sold on the black market and exchanged for cheaper Chinese copies. And then obviously the big problem that Russia always had, and that is logistics. So we remember these big columns of, of stuck Russian support vehicles, supply vehicles, stuck for two weeks uh, north of Kiev. These are basically all examples of how the Russian armed forces is much less powerful than we actually always thought in the West. Mm -hmm. And I guess those logistical issues are also connected with all of those other issues that you mentioned around corruption, command and control, etc. Like they can't be disentangled from each other when we're looking at how efficient a military force actually is on the ground. Do you think that we're going to see implications coming out of this conflict for how militaries around the world train for and engage in fighting going forward? Let's start first with personnel, because in the end, when it comes to effective war fighting, it's always the soldier. And a soldier has to be, literally has to know what he or she is fighting And obviously, morale is linked to many factors that can be as basic like accommodation, pay, feeling valued as as a member of a team. But when you look at, for example, how the United States Army approaches such questions, how Western military approaches such questions, like, for example, Australia approaches such questions in terms of organization and training, there I think we are quite in safe spot. Finland, for example which is very small, has one of the most capable soldiers, as we know from history, but also when it comes to joint uh, UN peacekeeping operations, as well as NATO exercises. And they even have basically a system where they're conscript, where they actually give basically their instructors marks. That sounds very modern for an army, because an army is always about hierarchy and it's about order and complying with orders. But that shows you that in the 21st century, with modern individuals, one can approach also military hierarchies and command and control, so to speak, in an advanced 21st century approach. So important is that you have to have good training, the circumstances that how you experience your service have to basically be comparable to the, the, the civil street. It's very important. That is obviously something we have to compete with the private sector. And then it comes obviously to material, to the systems which actually you're using. And then also that we are in the 21st century, that we are talking about all the cyber capabilities in terms of how, for example, we link up our military systems, man and machine. And I think there we are on the right way. And Mm -hmm. given that the Russian aggression has already seen across Europe, individual states meeting NATO's 2% GDP target. So really this approach to look at the armed forces not as a necessary evil but as a sort of guarantor of your freedoms and these men and women have to be equipped trained housed treated in a way that actually makes attractive to serve your country so that is where Mm -hmm. i think we are on the right path investment 
is high and also investment in human capital is high when it comes to Western armed forces. So you can say that the Ukraine war influenced the discussion we have about to what extent do we need armed forces, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Prompting a recalibration of how we consider our military forces and also the types of training and funding that are put into that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today, Sasha Dov. I've enjoyed the conversation and I really appreciate you being with us. Thank you, Jessica. I enjoyed it too. You've been listening to the update from Key Podcast. Thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. See you next episode. Mm-hmm.